Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. I'm Casey. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. Hey, this is Victoria, and you're listening to episode number 15, What to Know About Reporting. This is part one of our discussion on reporting options, and in this episode, we'll be getting into what you should know about reporting to law enforcement. I will walk you through some of the barriers and common questions about this type of reporting. Then we'll hear from Britta Clay, a victim advocate for the Fort Collins Police Department. We decided to split up reporting into three episodes because there's a couple of options for student survivors, and we wanted to share some real-life experiences with you. Here at CSU, you can report to law enforcement, and if your abuser is a CSU student, you may also report to the university to start a Title IX investigation. Jessica will tell you all about university reporting in part two of our discussion. The thought of reporting can be overwhelming, especially if you're new to the process, and it can help to know what reporting looks like before you make any decisions. Many students I've worked with told me that talking through the process has been super helpful in reducing their anxiety around reporting. I'm going to start by talking a bit more about the law enforcement reporting process. Any survivor, regardless of whether or not they're a student, can report to law enforcement. This is a complicated decision, and your identities have a huge role to play in it. We'll dig deeper into identities later in this episode. For now, though, let's talk about the actual reporting process. Keep in mind that you don't have to report right away. But if you make the decision to report, there's some things to think about. First, you have to figure out jurisdiction. This just means that the location of a crime determines which police department takes the report. So, if an assault happens on campus, like in a residence hall, you would report to the CSU Police Department. If it happened off campus, but in the Fort Collins city limits, then Fort Collins Police would take the report. If your assault happened outside Fort Collins, but in Larimer County, then you would report to the Larimer County Sheriff's Office. Of course, some assaults don't happen anywhere near Fort Collins, which will change jurisdiction. To make a report to law enforcement, you can call or drop into a police station and talk to an officer. The advocates at the WGAC may be able to help you connect directly with a detective instead of a patrol officer, which can make their process a little easier in some cases. Seems pretty easy so far, right? Well, before you make a decision, you may want to think about the possible outcomes of reporting to law enforcement, which will depend on your unique situation. Once you report to law enforcement, a patrol officer or detective may decide there's not enough evidence to bring charges against your abuser and nothing further will happen. In other situations, a criminal case may be opened. A detective will perform an investigation and then pass along findings to the district attorney, or DA. The district attorney will then decide if the case will move forward to court or not. If the DA decides not to move forward with your case, This does not mean your experience wasn't serious or valid. It doesn't even mean the DA doesn't believe you. The DA is just ethically bound to take cases with enough evidence to convince a jury. I know that can sound pretty discouraging. I mean, it's super hard to think that such a horrible crime may go completely unpunished in the legal system. Sometimes, justice doesn't feel very just. However, if you make the decision to report to law enforcement, It's also important to ask yourself about your motivations. For example, if you're choosing to report because you want to see your abuser go to jail, then you might be disappointed because very few perpetrators will ever see jail time. 
Some survivors have told me they even felt unheard and re-victimized by reporting. But some survivors I work with say that reporting made them feel like they did all they could in this situation, which helped put it behind them and made it easier to recover and regain a sense of control over their lives, independent of the outcome. So for some survivors, the reporting process isn't that bad. For others, it may not be easy at all. These feelings and experiences look different for everyone and are all valid. I'm going to switch gears now and talk about barriers to reporting to law enforcement. As I mentioned earlier, identities have a huge role to play in this. Sometimes survivors are worried that law enforcement won't believe them, or they might hesitate to report because of bad past experiences with the police. These concerns are totally understandable. I mean, police training on interpersonal violence differs, and some police departments do way better than others. But you may still find reporting to be completely worth it, no matter where your assault happened. To start, we know that society and potential jurors have an image of the ideal victim, which is often a heterosexual, affluent, and beautiful white woman who is broken and a sobbing mess. If a survivor is poor, a person of color, LGBTQ+, a sex worker, or any combination of these and other marginalized identities, or if the survivor shows up hella strong and fierce, they may not be believed as much as other people. This totally sucks, but it's real. For example, policing in the United States has racism in its very roots because it began as slave patrols and night watches, both designed to control the behavior of people of color. In modern times, we have seen racism play out on a national level in the Black Lives Matter movement and the response of Blue Lives Matter. Of course, police lives matter. This has never been up for debate because officers do a great deal to keep our community safe, including putting their lives on the line. However, Black Lives Matter exists because unarmed black people are regularly killed by police officers or while in police custody in the United States. People like Sandra Bland, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, Corinne Gaines, Philando Castile, Walter Scott, and Stefan Clark are but a few examples of these tragedies. So we say Black Lives Matter because it's been so often shown that they don't. As a result, Black communities in the United States have learned that it isn't okay to trust law enforcement. If you'd like more information on racialized barriers to service, check out Marie's episode in season one called Barriers to Access for People of Color. Also, police departments are often hyper-masculine environments, and many of them demonstrate homophobia. Survivors in the LGBTQ community may hesitate to report to law enforcement for fear of discrimination or not being believed. They might even be scared of getting hurt by police officers if they report. You can find more trans-specific information in Casey's Season 2 episode called Barriers to Access for Trans Survivors. Other communities believe that these matters need to be handled within the family, religious community, or racial community of the survivor and their perpetrator. This can be even more important if a survivor or perpetrator is a member of a group that doesn't want to give their community a bad name or who believe group members should take care of their own. Also, for a variety of reasons, survivors may be afraid of their family or clergy members finding out about violence through the reporting process. Reporting may also get super complicated if a survivor chooses to stay in an abusive relationship and doesn't want their partner to get in trouble. 
or if they fear escalated violence as a result of reporting to law enforcement. Again, reporting is a complicated and complex decision for these reasons and so many more. It can help to talk to a confidential resource to seek support in making a decision around reporting that feels right to you. Remember that you don't have to report right away or at all. It's okay to take time to think about reporting and decide what's best for you. This decision is a personal one and you get to choose. Now that I've talked about some very real and important systemic issues, you as an individual may find it important to name your experiences and report them to law enforcement. So I'm gonna go over some of the common questions and concerns that many survivors bring up in advocacy. Several students I work with have asked me if there is a time limit in reporting to the police. In short, yes, there is. The window of time in which you can report a crime is called a statute of limitations. For example, with sexual assault in the state of Colorado, there is no statute of limitations if a person was under the age of 18 when the assault happened. But if the survivor was over 18, the statute of limitations is 20 years. So you have plenty of time to decide whether or not you'd like to report a sexual assault to law enforcement. Relationship violence is a bit more complicated, which can be really hard for survivors. In the state of Colorado, relationship violence is also known as domestic violence. Legally, it's not considered a crime in itself, but is added as an enhancer to other crimes. So an abuser can be charged with assault, harassment, or another crime with a DV, or domestic violence, enhancer, which impacts their sentencing. A DV enhancer can be involved for current or ex-intimate partners. The domestic violence enhancer may seem a bit weird, but it isn't too complicated. For example, if someone slashed their neighbor's tires, they can be charged with vandalism. But if they slash their ex-partner's tires, they can be charged with vandalism with a DV enhancer. Because of this, the statute of limitations for relationship violence depends on the crime. For example, if it's a case of misdemeanor physical assault, the statute of limitations is 18 months. For felony assault, it's three years. For other crimes, like attempted murder, there is no statute of limitations. A downside to this can be that a survivor does not necessarily know what police will say about their experience or what kind of crime it may be. This can be hard to figure out because there are no clear-cut answers. Some survivors also ask me about SANE exams. This stands for a Sexual Assault Nurses Exam. This is a medical process completed in a hospital during which trained nurses collect evidence from the body of a survivor in the seven days following a sexual assault. By law, you are not required to report to law enforcement in order to receive a SANE exam, but the evidence will be stored for at least two years and it may help if you choose to report at a later time. Survivors also share many concerns about reporting to law enforcement. You may have a whole list of reasons why you don't want to report, and they are all valid. Maybe you're confused about what happened. It's super common to feel this way about your experience. You may even blame yourself for what happened. This is normal, too, for so many reasons. Remember that sexual assault and relationship violence are never your fault. The only person responsible for violence is the abuser. You may also struggle with whether or not you want your abuser to receive punishment for what they did. This is a common feeling and one that can complicate the decision to report. I've heard many survivors say they don't want to ruin their abuser's life or they don't want them to get in trouble. But it may help to remember that your perpetrator made the decision to abuse you and any outcomes of reporting are not your fault. Also, acquaintance assaults on college campuses often happen within friend groups. 
You may struggle with the idea of your assault becoming public knowledge because it might feel embarrassing, or you may worry about being excluded from your friend group, club, or organization. Some survivors even lose friends when they decide to report. This is a super scary thing to consider, but any friends you lose weren't real friends to begin with. Some survivors I've worked with have struggled because their friends or family members pressure them to report. Sometimes friends, parents, or other support systems think that reporting to law enforcement is the best option and will try to convince you to make a report. This can be overwhelming and frustrating, especially if you aren't sure about this decision or have decided against it. Your loved ones mean well and want the best for you. Advocates at the WGAC are available to talk to you and your support people about pressure to report. Another concern you may have is what happens when you've been intimate with your perpetrator in the past or are currently in a relationship with the person who abused you. These are understandable concerns when it comes to reporting to law enforcement. Just because you were intimate with someone in the past does not mean you have to consent to anything in the future. Also, physical and emotional abuse and sexual assault happen often in abusive relationships. It's totally understandable if you're not ready to do anything about it or leave your relationship. This is a complicated decision. However, remember that interpersonal violence is against the law, and a past or current relationship does not mean someone gets to abuse you. You may also be concerned if you didn't have physical injuries and may feel like there's not enough evidence about what happened to you. But many sexual assaults don't result in external physical injuries. As I mentioned earlier, if a sexual assault happened within the past seven days, you can choose to have a SANE exam to check for DNA evidence that might not be visible on the surface. And we know that relationship violence, stalking, and sexual harassment don't always involve physical violence. However, there can still be other forms of evidence about what happened to you. Some survivors I work with are concerned about getting into trouble for what happened. Maybe you were drinking or using drugs at the time of your assault. If you're a minor, maybe you're afraid of being disciplined, either by the law or by your parents. When reporting an assault to police, they will be investigating the assault, not the fact that you were drinking. It's important to remember that assault is a crime, no matter the circumstances. Nothing you did caused this to happen. I've talked to lots of police officers that say they're not interested in pursuing charges for drinking or drug use when a survivor reports an assault, and they do not want this to be the reason you choose not to report. If you have questions or concerns about reporting, you're not alone. Reporting interpersonal violence to the police might seem like a natural next step in resolving the issue, and many survivors choose not to report at all. You may have a whole list of reasons why you do or don't want to report, and they are all valid. Again, reporting interpersonal violence to law enforcement is a complex choice. The confidential advocates at the WGAC are here to support students and secondary survivors in this process. I know I talked about a lot of stuff today, but you don't have to take my word for it. We'll now hear from Britta Clay, a victim advocate for the Fort Collins Police Department. Britta has a ton of experience working with survivors and can offer some insight about her role and thoughts on reporting to law enforcement. Hey, Britta, welcome to the studio. I'm so glad you can join us today. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and um, very much appreciate you asking me to come. For sure. All right. Could you please talk to me a little bit about your salient identities? So I'm a native of Fort Collins in Colorado, so I very much am in tune to the growth of the city. Um, I consider myself, oh, I am a local. Um, so I've been around the university for a long time, so I've seen how it's grown and how it's changed. Um, 
I am a stepmom, so I um, know the, the challenges and also the benefits of having a little one in my life um, and then the extended family that comes with that. Um, I have been in law enforcement for 10 years, and then before that, I was a victim advocate with a nonprofit who worked with law enforcement, so I very much am law enforcement-minded. So I approach a lot of that, um, the cases that I work and the people I work with, with the law enforcement mind, but then I'm also a trauma specialist. So my heart and my passion and a huge part of my identity and who I am is more of the science-based um you know, reactions that, that happen to victims that they have no control over that we then see portrayed um, during their trauma and trying to explain some of that so that they know there's nothing wrong with them, something happened to them. So I've studied that. That's been my passion for the last probably seven or eight years completely. So my um, my main focus and identity within work is this trauma specialist um, from everything from harassment to homicide, but specifically with sexual assault. So that's a huge piece. Um, of what I, I really bring to to the work that I do with victims every day. I operate on the statewide position as far as victim advocates go. I'm on the board of directors for our Colorado organization for victim assistance. So I've been really involved. I'm starting to get more involved with public policy. So that's becoming another um, kind of hat that I wear. And another part of this whole role that I'm in is to really look at some of the, the issues um, that victims are up against and how offenders... Um, we really focus on the laws that around them, but how does that affect victims? So that's just another part of um, kind of this victim advocate um, identity that we have. That's great. It sounds like you have a lot of really amazing experience with survivors. I'm going to dig into that a little bit more. Would you tell me a little bit more about your role as a victim advocate and maybe a bit about how systems-based advocates differ from community-based advocates? Absolutely. So um, I am a law enforcement victim advocate. I always have been. Um, most law enforcement or sheriff's office, um, they have a victim advocate team, especially in Colorado. I feel like we're very progressive as far as um, victims issues and working with crime victims. So as far as my role, um, my advocate team, we really have to focus on the victim's rights amendment, which is um, a Colorado uh, state statute that was passed in 92 that actually changed our Colorado Constitution to allow for certain um, victims of certain crimes to have rights under the state constitution. So part of um, being in law enforcement and then also with the DA's office or in that system world is we have to, by law, provide services to crime victims. And a lot of that is um, notifying them of the critical stages in the investigation or the process. Um, but when you're working with somebody in trauma, it's it's just not very practical to hand them information or a brochure. So that's why we have our advocate team to make sure that victims know what their rights are and that those rights are being met, but also provide that crisis counseling and provide that support, um, help them kind of navigate the system because it's really confusing. It's sometimes confusing for us who kind of live in that world. So that's our main role as systems-based is to make sure victims know what their rights are and they're being met and then also to provide that um, that kind of acute trauma response. So we respond 24-7 to um, a lot of VRA crimes and basically what that is is any crime against a person. Um, but we take that above and beyond. We respond to um, victims of circumstance, so like suicide or someone who dies in their home, maybe a car accident that's just an accident, 
um, things like that will respond out and provide services and try to get um, those long-term community services in place so that that victim has a support system. So that's kind of what my team does in general. Um, I specifically work with our investigative team, and I am assigned to all of our sexual assaults, all of our homicides, and our fatal motor 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 vehicle accidents, uh, most of which are criminal. So with that, um, we, or I will assist victims with that first initial interview with an officer or um, specifically a detective. Once it gets assigned to a detective, um, I will help explain the process to them, help with investigative um, tools that we use along the road, make sure they have that support system built up, um, give them updates in their case, um, really just make sure they, they know what's going on. Let, uh, make sure they know what their options are. And then once and if we are able to press charges and this case goes to court, I will follow that through to the first initial hearing, which is the bond hearing. And after that, the DA victim advocate will take over. So they are also that systems-based advocate that will provide that um, same kind of support through the criminal justice system, through the prosecution. Um, and oftentimes we partner when it comes to that because then you've been working with the victim for four to six months or even longer. You build that connection and that rapport. So we, we work a lot of those cases together and follow them through. The biggest difference between systems and more community-based advocacy is with systems, um, because I am an agent of law enforcement and I fall under that umbrella, I have no confidentiality, which sounds terrifying to crime victims. So as far as in the realm of law enforcement, um, if a victim were to tell me more about their victimization or maybe they're afraid to tell the officer or the detective something um, and they tell me I, I have to report that to the investigative detective or officer because it's part of the case and I don't have that confidentiality. Um, now, as far as outside of law enforcement, I absolutely have very strict confidentiality. So if a parent or a husband or a wife or brother, sister, whoever were to call and want information about the victim's case, um, I, of course, do not give them any information unless that's something the victim wants and I have their permission to share some details. But even then, we're very... Um, closed on what we can release because of an open investigation. We really want to protect the integrity of that case. Um, with community-based advocacy, they do have that full confidentiality, which I feel like is really important to kind of have both. So I really, um, in every case I work, I always make referrals to community-based advocacy so that those victims have that person that they can go to where they know there's full confidentiality. So if there is an aspect of the case that they're not comfortable sharing with law enforcement or maybe they're afraid or they feel guilty, that's a huge reaction that we see, um, they can share that with their community-based advocate and know that's not going to go anywhere, but maybe talk through that um, and then report it at another time if they're ready. So I think it's really important that they have that balance to have that full confidential resource, but then also have us that can really explain that system. And, you know, we, I'm right down the hall from the investigators. So, um, yeah, I usually know pretty quickly what's going on with their case and can be that, that other, um, avenue as far as information goes. Great. Thank you. That's a great explanation. What do you feel is the most important thing for survivors to know about reporting to law enforcement? So I think there's a lot. Um, I think in today's political climate and just society, victims, um, what I'm seeing is victims are very afraid that they're not going to be believed or that they have to walk in the doors and have proof 
that their victimization happened. And so I think it's really important for people to know that that is just not, that's not accurate. You walk in those doors of the police department and we believe that this happened to you. Um, and we want to make sure that you get the best support and services. Um, that is our top priority. And I speak for our law enforcement officers and our detectives, and I feel comfortable doing that because I have been there 10 years. And our agency does a really great job of education with law enforcement. Um, before they even hit the street, I do a full training on trauma specific to sexual assault and domestic violence. So officers know what to look for. They know what traumatic reactions look like. Um, so they focus, we focus a lot on that. So we, we never want a victim to feel like they're not going to be believed. So an example is I worked a case recently and the, after the victim was victimized, instead of calling police, um, she wanted to get help. She wasn't necessarily in a safe place, but she instead tried to start gathering evidence before um, like going to other locations where she had met this person and she wanted to walk in the door with proof that this happened. And it just, it, it broke my heart because that's our job as law enforcement to put those pieces together, to do the investigative work, to help build that evidence. Um, so that's not a victim's role. The victim's role is to survive and to do what's best for them. So the biggest thing is I want victims to know that, that we absolutely believe them. Um, and they have a lot of power in what happens. So I think some people think that when they come to the police department, there's going to be a full investigation and they really have no say in what happens. And that's just not accurate. Um, we give our victims a lot of power and decision making. So if they decide midway through they're done and they don't want to continue with an investigation, then we can suspend that. Um, we can just take some time and let them process. We can do several interviews um, if it's too hard to do an interview in one setting. So there's a lot of power that victims have going through that process um, because it's uh, even if we don't potentially have enough to file charges, um, I feel like there's a lot of benefit in reporting. There's a lot of benefit in the way that your brain reprocesses and processes the trauma when we ask you those interview questions. Um, there's a lot of support. There's a lot of resources that come with that. So I feel like there's a lot of benefit in reporting, but I just want people to know that they have a lot of power and they have a lot of say in that. We will never um, do more than, than the victim wants. Um, when I teach, and I teach a lot, People will ask me questions, and I swear I always answer with, it depends, which is really frustrating. But with law enforcement, every case is very, very different. So my caveat to that is there are some situations, like if a, a child or a juvenile is involved, that um, there are some situations where law enforcement, we have to act, even if the victim says they don't necessarily want that. But that is more situations that we have a child, we have like a mandated reporting type situation that we may have to then step in. Um, but all of that is fully explained to a victim if that is um, something that comes up and um, they have notice of that. What advice would you offer to survivors who may be on the fence about reporting? Definitely um, ask lots of questions. So we live in the world and the day of CSI and Law and Order SVU and all of those um, type shows. And then also um, people who come forward that aren't necessarily believed in society. It's been very public recently. 
And that's just not, that's not the one, the norm. That is, that's kind of the exception of what happens. Um, so I would definitely encourage somebody to reach out to a community resource. Um, we have so many here in Larimer County and I feel like we're, we're kind of, we're kind of different in Larimer County because we have a really, really great collaboration. So with almost all of the community resources here, we ha- they have a relationship with law enforcement so they know what the process looks like. So my biggest advice would be to reach out to one of those community resources or even call the police department and just ask, you know, if, if I want to report, what does that look like? And what if I want to talk to an officer in my home or ask those questions and you will get an honest answer um, and we can kind of walk you through that process. There's a lot of power in having that information and, and trying to have a clear picture of what um, talking to a detective or an officer is going to look like and what that process will will look like um, because what's out there isn't necessarily what it really is. So the biggest thing is, you know, ask those questions uh, and don't be hesitate or don't hesitate to bring somebody with you if you want to talk to law enforcement. Um, either, you know, I'm available on all of those cases, but we always have community-based advocates in the room if, if that's something that is is going to be a positive support for that victim. So they don't have to completely go on it, um, go at this all by themselves. They have that support system there as well. Any last thoughts or anything else you'd like us to know? I think, I mean, I know I keep saying it, the, the biggest thing is there's a lot of, you know, power in that information. So ask questions. Um, please reach out for help. The, I do feel there's a lot of benefit in reporting, but there's just times where people are not ready. They're not ready to report. The impact of the trauma is so severe um, that they're just, they're not ready to verbalize. They're not ready to, to talk about all of that. And that's okay. A lot of people think that I have to have this evidence and I have to have this DNA and this physical evidence. And we know as law enforcement, majority of our cases are people who wait days, weeks, months, even years to report. And we could have successful prosecution. Um, so, you know, don't, I would say don't let that impact what you feel you need to do, what's best for you. Um, the other thing I would say too is justice comes in all forms. And that doesn't necessarily mean that um the perpetrator ends up in prison for the rest of their life. Cause I feel like I see that a lot too, where victims say, I may not want, you know, I I'm worried about him getting in trouble or I don't want to ruin his life. And so we talk a lot about that and what victims want to see as the end result of this. And we try to work towards that or get them to a point where they have justice for them. And that may be all different kinds of, um, Victims may have different views on what that justice is. And so we always ask victims, you know, what what do you want to see come out of this? And we try to make that happen so that when they leave the doors of the police department and they were done with this investigation, that they are in a better spot than when they came in. Great. Britta, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. That's all for this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's wgac at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U.
For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening and take care of yourself.